Because mind if I just get into it? <laughs> what? <clears throat> in the late 1960s, yeah, I know. I'm getting into it, right? In the late 1960s, singer and songwriter Joni Mitchell was taking a plane from one country to another, and she looked out the window from her seat on the plane and saw the clouds from above, and most of the time we see the clouds from below, right? And this experience was novel to her, I guess, in the sense that she chose to write a song about that. She was inspired to write a song about that experience of seeing clouds from above, from a different perspective, from a different point of view. And that song became Both Sides Now, which is one of the greatest songs, honestly, of that time, of her career. And there's this chorus early on in the song, the first chorus that she sings, it says this, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down and still somehow. It's clouds, illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. And so her conclusion in this song and throughout this song is, I can see things maybe from all these different points of view and still I'm left wanting and I'm left with little understanding of what I'm, what I'm looking at. And I find that very profound. And she applies this not only to just clouds, like, okay, you know, we know what those are, but she applies this to more abstract concepts too, like love and life. And she says, I really don't know love at all. Like in spite of all my experiences that I've had with different people in my life, I've still, <clears throat> I've barely scratched the surface of these things. I don't really know life at all. And these are the conclusions she comes to, which is sort of kind of nice, and maybe she's kind of at peace with that in the song, but I find it profound because it, it shows me, it teaches me, we have a limited perspective. I have a limited perspective. You have a limited perspective. Joni Mitchell has a limited perspective that we can't undo. It's just it's the way we are. But that's not what this series is about. In Isaiah 55, 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, The Lord sees, not as man sees. There's this clear difference, this clear contrast between the God we serve and ourselves. And that is we have a limited perspective and he has an unlimited perspective. And that's what the series is about that we're getting into and with, with perspective here, reality revealed, right? God has an unlimited perspective. Not only does he have that, but he has given us his spirit and his word to give us access to this unlimited perspective. And that's huge. And that's something that we don't have apart from him. And that we can't coax up on our own. And so that's something that we just want to dive into over the next couple weeks as we get into God's word and figure out together what is God's perspective on this or that and these different aspects of life that can be really valuable to apply to our lives as we go about uh, go about them, go about our lives. So why don't you pray with me as I get into the rest of this time together.
Father, we, we sit and we are humbled by the understanding, by the acknowledgement that we aren't enough, <laughs> that our eyes cannot perceive things that you, you see clearly, God. And you have a perspective that is so transcendent to us and a power that we can know and understand that is so beyond us. And so we, we sit just in awe of you tonight as a result of these realities. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us individually in a special way through your spirit to new heights of perspective, to new ways of seeing the world you've created, the world that we live in. And I pray that we would take that and apply it so that we can live to your glory. And in Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. So tonight, my goal is to unpack success, defining success. This is a thing that there's a lot of different maybe ideas about. And what does it mean to be successful? And we have to start with, okay, well, what is, what is a cultural perception of what it means to be successful? I have an image to help describe this. There it is. I find it humorous by now, but it's, I'm pretty sure it's made in earnest. And it has this very, like, aggressive tone to it that I'll walk you through. If you're 20 to 30 and your main circle isn't discussing opening businesses, investing, escaping the nine to five, fitness, and self-development, then it's time to find a new circle, right? Your network, I love this, is your net worth. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know, I find this, this is kind of like an exaggerated example, but, but like, is this not a message that is sort of like, it's kind of, it kind of tugs at you a little bit like, oh man, I, man, I need, I need to start thinking about this stuff, you know? Like, man, these are some, you know, we got the, the celebrities on there, you know, this is a successful person. They, they're dressed in their little suits, you know? Like, oh, they know things. And I should, I should do that too, you know? And so it's almost guilting you into like, you're an idiot if you're not involved in this stuff, you know? Like, that's kind of what it's messaging to me. And, uh, you know, you need to get better friends. <laughs> and this is this ideal of success that we kind of get fed culturally. Now, for you, this particular form of success might not be that appealing, but I assure you, like, there you probably have other cultural ideals of success that you're not even aware of. That's just like, these are things that through whatever, social media, and through just all the different things, just parts of intake in our life, really, in terms of the people we're around and media, and the things that we just digest throughout our lives, throughout the day. Um, it, it seeps in. And this is summarized well by a pastor and author named Randy Lanthrop in a book called Attitudes of Success. He writes, as a commentary on this cultural thing, in America, we value position, possessions, and performance, right? Position in terms of our status, and the heights that we can achieve in terms of hierarchy, or possessions in terms of our wealth, or the things we can wear, or our looks, and our performance in terms of our achievements, and what, how we can deliver you know, before other people. These are the kinds of things that we tend to value. 
whether you know it or not. <laughs> and so starting from there, what is real success? What's the success that I want to talk about tonight? I want to, we need to first perceive it and then we need to pursue it. We want to perceive real success. We want to pursue real success. That's what we're here to talk about tonight. First, real success is found in God's blessing. There's a blank there. You can fill that in if you like. Real success is found in God's blessing. And so another quote in this book that I reference from Randy Lanthrop, it says, biblical success is experiencing the blessing of God both now into, in, into eternity. And so I think that the word success has a lot of different ideas behind it and w- ways we could view it. But also the word blessing too is sort of muddied by culture. We bless food and we ask God to bless us just kind of generally in prayers sometimes. And there's also what happens when you sneeze. Yeah, like why? Why do, why do we do that? I just, <laughs> most of the time, I don't really want to do that. I'm just like, I don't understand it. What's the point? But people like it when you do it, so I'd, I'd say it, you know? But we have these ideas, like what does it mean to be blessed, you know? Or you're like hashtag blessed, right? I say that ironically sometimes because I think it's funny. It's like, oh, I'm hashtag blessed because of whatever kind of material <laughs> beneficial thing happened to me today. And these are kind of some of our misconceptions. I want to wipe this slate clean a little bit and reset our idea of what does blessed mean? What does blessed mean? There's a passage here that I'm going to read for us. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He prospers. And so this biblical notion of success while there are these kind of visible attributes, at the end of the day, it's still just a tree. <laughs> you know, there's nothing flashy about it. But God has enabled this tree and this metaphor to abound and to be blessed with his, with, with three main things that the, the Lord does here. And I, I, just that I picked up here. First is satisfaction. Satisfaction. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Guys, to delight in the law of the Lord and to abound in and enjoy time spent with God is the truest form of satisfaction that we can encounter. And we can seek other sources, but ultimately seeking our satisfaction in God is what matters. And that is something, that satisfaction is not something that might be outwardly perceived as a successful person. Like you can't see it, right? And provision, Provision's another thing. Its leaf does not wither. God provides for the kind of person who he chooses to bless. God provides for him and delivers him from hardship. And so even though this person might not have overflowing abundance of possessions or whatever, God provides and they have what they need. And that's enough (laughs) to be content in of itself 
is such a beautiful picture of being blessed by God. And then after satisfaction and provision, this fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. This tree yields its fruit in its season. One amazing blessing of God is that we, when, when enabled to do so, when we're walking with him, we produce the fruit of righteousness and of good works and of deeds in ways that, that glorify him and bless other people and cause benefit to other people. And so we see here satisfaction, provision, and fruitfulness. These are some keys of the blessed life, according to Psalm 1. And also, I want to take a pause here to say that the blessed life, the blessed life starts with receiving the gift of salvation. It's, it's here where this person delights in God and they are planted, planted by the streams of water. And so when you choose to give your life to Jesus for the first time, you are firmly planted in that stream and you cannot be uprooted. And, and you get to experience the life that comes from receiving the nutrients from that stream. And so that is where we begin. That's where the blessed life begins, is in understanding that God has sent Jesus to die in your place. And in spite of all, every failure and every sin that you've committed, he chose to take that punishment upon himself so that we could experience well, success, new life in him, the blessed life, both now and into eternity. And so that's where we begin. That's where we begin. And so another, one more facet of perceiving success that I want to mention is that success is not the avoidance of trouble. Success is not the avoidance of trouble. See, a lot of people are chasing cultural success because they think that because of the peace that they think it will bring. We think that, okay, I'm not, I'm not knocking what anyone's doing with their life, but you got your university major, you're going to major and you're going to graduate, and then after that you get a good job. Why? So you can make good money. Why? So you can have security, right? And you can feel like, oh man, I've got all these financial problems perhaps right now. I'm struggling, but if I can kind of get there, then I'm not going to struggle with that anymore and I'm going to have peace. And that problem is going to be solved and resolved. And I want you to know, like, the only, the truest peace, the only peace that we can experience comes from the blessed life that comes from being planted by that stream that we talked about in Psalm 1. And so, we, we chase this in all different ways. Man, if I just get that spouse and I'm no longer worried about my love life, you know, it's like I'll be at peace. Or if I have this position in this company or some sort of authority, people respect me, then I'll have peace. We chase these different forms of success culturally in order to seek peace. But Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Everybody has trouble. The rich, the poor, the married, the single, everybody experiences trouble. And there's no way to escape that. But the righteous or the blessed person, in God's eyes, the Lord delivers him out of all of those afflictions. So success is not the avoidance of trouble. It is a healthy 
reliance upon God in the midst of trouble. It is trust in God to deliver you from that thing. Okay, so recap there. Real success is found in God's blessing. And so the next, I want to talk about pursuing real success. How do we obtain that? How do we move toward that? There's some hints in Psalm 1. If you look back at Psalm 1 later, there's some hints about how you can achieve that. But I have two other points that I want to make here in terms of pursuing real success. So first, real success is found through unseen attributes. Unseen attributes. See, what we commonly think of in terms of the success that the world promises, the success that the world kind of feeds us with, it's, it's outward. And it's, it's looking impressive. And it's projecting an, an image of prosperity and just showing people in a visible way how prosperous we are, how successful we are. And that's not what we see in the Bible, though. And so some setup here. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's a character. His name is Samuel. The book's named after Samuel. And he is looking at some a moment of the book. He's looking for the next king of Israel. He's a priest, and he's looking for the next king of Israel. And he goes to the house of a man named Jesse. And God says, somewhere in this house in, of his sons, one of his sons, is going to be the king of Israel, the next king of Israel. He's like, all right, got to find, got to find out which one. There's a lot of them. So a way to describe what I'm going to describe here, I have another image. And uh, so there's some, there's some guys. Who are these guys? It's the Hemsworths. Yes. And so basically picture Samuel walks into Jesse's home and he's got he's these sons, and like picture like these three guys plus five more in descending order of height and handsomeness. <laughs> no offense, no offense to this one. He'll be fine, you know, but it's just different. And so picture them. These are the sons of these are the sons of Jesse that are presented to Samuel. I was like, okay, which one do you want? Which one do you which one do I want, you know, of all these different sons of Jesse? Like, Samuel's like, how about that one? And, and God's like, he says this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. And so God says, don't do it. He says, okay. He moves to Liam, right? And he says, all right, how about him? He'll do. I'm looking for the king of Israel, right? He needs to be able to get things done. This will, he'll do. And God says, no, not him. And we keep moving down the line. And the, the candidates get progressively uh, weaker in terms of their, their, this appearance. And Samuel's kind of getting bummed out, like, man, this guy has to lead the people of Israel. This is ridiculous. And so, but David is this last son all the way down the line. He's the last son. He's the least obvious candidate to be the king of Israel, over, way over here. And so, 
And, but it's in reality, God wants David. And so Samuel is like, all right, I guess I'll, I guess I'll do it. And he anoints David then and there to be king at a later time. And in the next chapter, David throws a sling and hits a giant in the forehead and Goliath is conquered by David and his courage and his desire to glorify God with, his, with his, the work of his hands and his choices to stand up to this, this foe. And then in the next chapter, it's talking about all these different things that God is enabling and blessing David to do. And it gives us the secret to David's success. First, you know, the Lord looks on the heart, right? Well, in 1 Samuel 18, 14, it says, David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. For the Lord was with him. And was, was the Lord like with him, like next to him? And people could say, hey, he's got the Lord with him. This is a visible, no, right? It, the Lord was with him, not in a physical presence. He didn't have a halo over his head. He didn't have a, like a beam of light surrounding him. There was no visible thing there. It was just the unseen presence of the Lord within David and with David and David's unseen heart to obey. The Lord looks on the heart. And so this is what we see in this particular passage where God chooses the least likely candidate, one, to just to glorify himself. He says, I can use even this guy. And two, it's because he saw through to David's heart in a way that, that Samuel or his brothers or his father couldn't. And, and that's what God is looking for in a person that he wants to bless. And so we need to cultivate these unseen attributes of a person after God's own heart. And there's a whole host of ways that we can try and do that. But just that general concept, we're not looking for an outward show of our success or our ability to impress or succeed in some way or another. And so to end this section, 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, so we do not lose heart. Why? Because our outer self is wasting away. My almost 30-year-old self is wasting away. You know, that's great. Like, what's up with that? It just happens. You get older, guys. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is a thing that does not fade, does not grow old and cause to deteriorate like our outward appearance. But inwardly, if you make the choice every day to walk with God and to develop your relationship with God and through your relationship with God to cultivate unseen attributes like humility, teachability, patience, fear of the Lord, trust in the Lord, these different things that set you up as a person that God wants to to use and to bless. That is what's going to help you to progress and be blessed in ways that might not even be noticeable to the people around you. But that's the person God wants to use. And then finally, real success is found through, sorry, unselfish ambition. Unselfish ambition. I got another blank there. And what I'm getting this terminology from is the book of Philippians, 
we have, there's two things that I want to get into before we close. We have unselfish ambition and selfish ambition. So, so Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is a countercultural idea, right? This is a countercultural idea because we're indoctrinated to put ourselves first and to be self-seeking, right? We want to promote ourselves. We want to lift ourselves up in order to be seen by others, to be, to be successful in others' eyes. But in this verse, and we can kind of picture, like, okay, we want to be unselfish. We don't want to do anything from selfish ambition. And we see this too in Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. And so you can glorify yourself. That's an option. It's not the right option. You can glorify yourself or you can glorify God. And those, those are the two options there. And, but this idea of ambition is interesting to me because even the word ambition, I sort of, there's this almost negative connotation. It's almost like you're, you're too zealous or too passionate toward a particular goal. It might kind of depend on, I don't know, where you're coming from in terms of, okay, is ambition good or bad? And we see selfish ambition, we're like, okay, that's bad. We know that's bad. And we see that, we see that per- selfish ambition is personal gain at others' expense. I'm going to get you out of the way in order to get what I want, right? That's selfish ambition. And it's like, do I need to ask you if that's bad? Like, no. Like, it's, that's, that's a problem. And there's probably some ways in which we need to root, root that out of our life. But there's also unselfish ambition, Unselfish ambition is personal sacrifice for God's glory. Unselfish ambition is personal sacrifice for God's glory, where it's not about me, but I'm being ambitious in terms of the choices I make and the zeal that I apply to the things that I choose to do in life and the ways that I bless other people and worship God with my life. Now, do you guys want to know the problem with Christians? Do you guys want to know the problem with Christians? There's, a, there's maybe a few, but one of the problems with, with some Christians, I'm not calling everybody out, but some Christians, a lot of them, if we have selfish ambition over here and we have unselfish ambition over here, a lot of Christians are in the middle, right? They know enough to not be selfish, but... They're not proactive enough to risk it all for God's kingdom. They're in the middle. And so my encouragement to you, my plea to you, is to not extinguish ambition in your life, but to redirect it from a naturally selfish disposition, a naturally selfish orientation, and redirect it to an unselfish orientation where we go all out and we do maybe crazy things in the name of glorifying our God. William Carey, missionary to India, said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. This, these two statements here, we want to expect in our prayers and in the choices we make. God is so powerful. <laughs> and we don't, we don't live like it often because we don't do things that invoke his power and we don't ask him to do the things that he'd happily do if we actually asked him. 
You, you don't have because you don't ask, James says. And then we want to attempt great things for God and make sure that like, we are active in our pursuit of the good. We're active in our ambition to make Christ known among all nations and among the people that we're around. I have one more kind of story thingy here, also from 1 Samuel. It's about this guy named Jonathan. And Jonathan was the son of the first king of Israel. He was the son of the first king of Israel before David was anointed, like we saw earlier. Jonathan and really the whole army was in a predicament because they didn't have hardly any weapons. There was this like monopoly on like metal (laughs) and their enemies, the Philistines had all the weapons and everyone was just cowering in fear. They're just hiding in different places in the terrain and thinking, I don't, know, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. We're just going to hide here and see what happens. And Jonathan was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I need to go do something, hoping, <laughs> praying, and assuming that God is going to work through this, work through my obedience, my choice to go big in courage for his glory. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, 1 Samuel 14, he said, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps we can defeat them. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. He knows. It's just the two of them. Just two guys, and they're going to try and overtake this outpost of these Philistines, these enemies of Israel, these enemies of God. And he says, God is capable of doing this, so let's go out there and see if he'll choose to use us or not. (laughs) And he put himself out there. He risked it all. And what happened is they successfully defeated that whatever garrison, this outpost of 20 guys in an area. And this, this one act of obedience set the whole camp of Philistines in the tizzy. And they're like, whoa, what's going on? And they start panicking. And the other people in the Israelite camp were like, oh, this is to our advantage. They're, they don't know what's going on. We're going to attack now. This, this whole action of Jonathan and his armor bearer, just two guys, emboldened the whole rest of the Israelite army to go and fight that battle, understanding that God is in control and he wants to use us if we choose to step forward in faith and choose to go into battle, even when it seems impossible. Now, there's two insights on this phenomenon as I kind of, I'm getting there, I'm wrapping up, guys, don't worry. From Pastor Erwin McManus, he wrote this book called Chasing Daylight, and he kind of is, throughout that book, he's examining this situation in 1 Samuel 14, and it's really interesting. And there's two insights on this that I want to cover. First, he writes this, the greatest danger that success brings, aside from arrogance, is the fear of losing what has been gained. What that means is if you're so intent on material success and holding on to material success, I can't risk this. I need to hold on to this. Then you will not be able, you will not be available to God due to this fear of losing what has been gained. You won't be available to God because you're just holding tightly on, onto what you've already obtained, what you've already gained. And so when we're so caught up in seeking success or holding on to success, then that causes problems. It causes us to not trust God 
in our obedience to him, to take risks for his glory. And then the second thing he says is that when we offer ourselves as instruments for God's purpose, we create opportunities for others to experience God through us. What is the most loving thing you can do for another person? Maybe it is taking a risk for God's glory. Why? Why is that? Because ambitious steps of faith for God's glory are an act of generosity. Ambitious steps of faith for God's glory are an act of generosity. People get to experience God through you. If you're walking in faith, if you're walking in trust and even a risk for the sake of God's glory and ambitiously stepping out in faith for God's glory is an act of generosity that we can give to other people. And that's the most unselfish thing we can do. And so holding on selfishly to our own perception of success is truly a way that we're not going to be used by God and we're not going to be truly blessed by him. I'm going to close basically with one final verse here from Jeremiah 17. It says, But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. This is not, their, success is not their hope and confidence. What other people think of them is not their hope and confidence. They have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like, this sounds familiar, trees planted along a river, river bank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Do you want this to be true of you? Do you want this to be true of you? This once again is a picture of God's blessing upon those who pursue unseen attitudes. They're not looking for credit and unselfish ambition. They're trying to bless other people and glorify God with their bold steps of faith. So I encourage you to seek God's glory, not your own. And seek to make God known, not yourself seen. And so that's how you're going to achieve real success beyond just what we see in this temporary, this external realm. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of getting to know you and be blessed by you and to experience your goodness in the world. And I pray, God, that you would just give us and put on our hearts a word of, of action and obedience to what your word tells us and what I believe your spirit is prompting us in, within each one of us. I pray, God, that we would walk away from here affected and inclined to, to look at your word for guidance on how to live and that we would seek a kind of success that is real, that is true, that you alone bring. And so I pray that you would give us clarity in that. And um, we just thank you so much for your gifts that you've given, for your omniscience, for your ever-present perspective that leads us to greater depths of knowing you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.